The Creative Trust is a limited podcast series to celebrate 20 years of Gloss Creative. Together with our stellar alumni, we'll share everything we know to be true about the creative process and the business reality of running a small but powerful design platform. Two decades ago, I started Gloss Creative as my creative platform for experimentation and exploration. What has ensued has been an endlessly rewarding creation of ephemeral installations, each one put up, pulled down, each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience. I learned early on that I could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something. Memories that lasted long after the physical immersion had gone. It crystallised my long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force and that creative renewal is your most powerful weapon over time. Welcome to the Creative Trust. I'm very excited today. I'm sitting with Ronin Gorin. My bio, once again, is always the bio that I make up. I met Ronin, I've worked out, almost two and a half decades ago, which is a long time. I can remember when I worked at Country Road and the team there decided that they would rebrand the whole of Country Road and they looked around at different agencies and then it was you guys who won it. And you and Fab came in and I remember the VM team, we literally were so excited that the mystical Ongarato design was coming in. And I remember the day that you came to present the meeting room and the VM team and I literally hid around the corner to watch. We were very excited. So I think that was kind of the first time I met you and that was like in full or can I even speak to this person? Um, which was amazing because, I mean, as then as now, your studio over 30 years has been associated with the most incredible body of work, awarded, loved, and really set a standard beyond anything really in Australia. So we were taken in with that as well. Uh, Later on, of course, I was super thrilled to meet you through your works that you had been doing with GPO as it were an amazing um with Melissa and a whole lot of team and that was such a great collaboration which I just adored as well and we just started to talk and have great conversations and really have done ever since and I think um, that's something that I'll talk about the relationships that you build with people over time but I do want to say that Ronin is so many things as most brilliant people are and as we've already talked on the podcast as well a lot of creative people also have business and entrepreneurial minds so Ronin studied architecture is also the owner and co-designer of the Longhouse in Dalesford, which is something that you've everyone's probably heard of, but I am going to ask him about that today because I think that's a very big part of who he is. He's kind of town and country. <laughs> um, he's so, you sort of do both, don't you? you? You've got the lifestyle going. Gumboots on yeah. weekends. Yeah, so very excited to hear where this goes today. I think we're going to start at the beginning, talk about your youth. Was there anything in your childhood that did or didn't set you up for your creative life on end? Look, I probably have my mother to thank more than anything, I think, much for, well, both my parents for their incredible work ethic, my mum for her unwavering commitment in doing whatever she has done over, over her life. And so I guess in many respects, there's been fairly good influence in that respect. I think, oddly enough, becoming an architect or at least training to be an architect was a mechanism that allowed um, her to live her life somewhat vicariously. I think in an, in another era, um, she would have probably been a lot more pursuant to a career. So did she have a job or a career can you remember as a child so yeah when you were a child yeah hairdressing and then working in fashion for a period of time where they had a fashion house beautiful and then later career life becoming a chef so those influences kind of permeated we seem to endlessly move houses as 
kids. Did she like to decorate? <laughs> I love that. Well, she was obsessed with plan and kind of everything well conceived and rationalised. So it's, I mean, even still today at 80, thereabouts move into their kind of last retirement apartment and she's still endlessly working with March Studios. She's endlessly redrawing Rodney's drawings and plans. Wow. Checking her ergonomics. Imagine how he feels when he gets that (laughs) feedback. Loving it. I love it. And normally she's thought about it probably way too much. I love And so in that. a way there's kind of, you know, the dynamics of getting the placement of the oven right or, you know, so I think part of that growing up in a sphere where they've both been entrepreneurs and creative leaning and then also just instilling really good work ethic I think has kind of really been part of I think the inheritance in my persona and character that I've carried through in life. Inheritance is a really nice word. Often we only think of that as the dollar. In a monetary sense. That is beautiful. (laughs) Like, you know, it's the stuff you can't touch is also your inheritance. I must say I do feel like the things that your parents leave you with, you often don't realise, often till they're gone actually, about what they gave you, you know. Why do I always listen to classical music in the car? My dad did. You know, I would never have thought of that. Why do I collect books on the shelf? So did my dad, you know, things like that. And I think that sense of growing up, often creativity comes through play and that sort of thing. What was it that you did in your childhood? Did you make things? What was your expression of creativity when you were young? It's never really a conventional child, although in some ways a bit conformist. You know, first child always wanted to fit in, but I think through life and a series of circumstances, I kind of had to learn to adapt. I mean, I'm very fortunate upbringing with no turbulence or anything that kind of had a detrimental effect. So very supported, although a very kind of ambitious, pushing mother that was always, you know, the test came in 98%. What happened to the other 2%? Wow. (laughs) Wow. Maybe striving for something better or doing better isn't a bad thing sometimes. Yeah, I think you also, I mean, philosophically, learn to find your comfort. I think of a a time early in architectural study where I'd invested a lot in a project. I guess, you know, you started to work out come second, third year who was really talented, who worked exceptionally hard and applied themselves. And uh, I remember just not kind of hitting it off with my design lecturer for that year. Danger ahead. And real friction. And and so I, wor- I just busted my nut and ended up with something that I just wasn't happy with by way of grading and I kind of asked for a justification. And it ended up being quite fractious and in the end you realise that you kind of set your own measure in life and I think you yourself know a sense of satisfaction with your achievements. You know when you've sold yourself short and haven't performed and others. Um, so I, I don't know, sometimes you set, I know I know. there's always that voice of my mother in the background, but I think you set your own kind of pace and you measure yourself and I think that that's a, a really good, healthy relationship to have. And how do you sort of rationalise because obviously one part of you is very entrepreneurial, hardworking, and then you've got the long house, which is obviously a sort of a passion project for your actual life in a sense. Where did that come from? Is that anything like how do you know all of what you know (laughs) about the long house? It was interesting because long house was very much a transition. Um, My partner Trace and I, when he decided to move down from Brisbane, we made a commitment to formulating something that we both did together. And I was always keen for, uh, to continue later life learning. So always find things that pushed you and challenged you and that you could instill. And and I think it's easy when you hit your stride at your fifties to become very comfortable and you don't continue to push yourself. 
or not oddly enough, but unforeseen, you know, professional career continues to go from strength to strength and I still enjoy it. So again, I guess making plans and having good communication, you know, I think I continue to keep a foot in both camps for a while. That's amazing. Really? I mean, that was a huge project. Massive. And still is. Yeah, I think, look, part of it is also about legacy, you know, no kids. So what do we put our heart and money, our effort into, what do we leave behind? It's it's funny too, though, because I don't really, I see maybe if I was to kind of have to step back and appreciate or lord our achievement it's I mean I don't see ourselves as being kind of at the forefront of sustainable living but we have tried to instill design and at least try and push the boundaries to recognize that living that way and design doesn't necessarily mean it comes with any compromise so we've tried to push the boundaries on design and still hold a philosophy about food production and living more lightly on the planet and being much more conscious as part of that. I first remember the first of this I heard, and I'll get you to describe what the longhouse is to those who haven't seen it or, you know, in the media or anything, but the first I heard was you giving me a call and you go, oh, hi, you know, um, do you know where you can get white fly screen? I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. I know we can get gold and black, but like I got off the phone. I'm pretty sure I said to Steph Delberta, what does he want white screens for? Like, and you were describing it and I was like, man, I don't, I can't even imagine this, but I knew you were onto something special. And I remember another conversation that we had about when Grand Designs came to film your process. And after, I think, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, for going on five years, they sort of said to you, look, if you don't finish it soon enough, we won't be able to put you on the show <laughs> because, you know, we can't go more than six years or whatever. But eventually. We did get them to six. Happened. <laughs> Amazing. See, good things happen over time. And we're so, still we're still adding more things to the project. Beautiful. The solar farms, the current endeavor at the moment, so that we can be hundred percent off grid. Wow. So yeah, yeah to describe the project, yeah, we're what uh, is it? I mean, we were really fortunate again, you know, a reversal of roles working collaboratively with another kind of architectural genius. So Timothy Hill from Partners Hill and the team to realise this project over a decade or well, coming up to a decade now. The idea was to kind of put what I what we played out to be a kind of, when I say complex program, it's like, well, we want to live but we potentially want backpackers at times to stay with us so that's part of a workaway program. We may want to do an Airbnb. We could, want to, we could do a wedding with my passion for food. We wanted to be able to run a cooking school or a format for events to kind of create and spur the conversation around food and then all the things that go with animal husbandry, etc. So we ended up with the, in a cold climate such as Dalesford at the top of it, a very windy hill, 110 metre long, two-storey high greenhouse. And so that entire thousand 1,100 square metres is actually then broken up with little dwellings and buildings and garden fully inside, which the gardens hit the roof at this point. So, I mean, yeah. at five years it was already pretty fecund. Wow. I love it. And what sort of, have you, I know your passion for food. I see that, you know, the things that you cook, how's that playing out? Is that sort of everything that you wanted it to be in a way? Yeah. Look, it continues to provide us a way of meeting really interesting people and just starting to plan the next kind of uh, schedule of events and activities. There's an amazing vegan cook in our region that is a wild forager and so he just shows you how to make food out of weeds right. um, and the health benefits of all of those things. So it continues to open our eyes to many things that a very comfortable or defined sphere kind of you don't experience 
So yeah, we, we're very fortunate to kind of just continue with that. I think we're planning on building one more component on there. Hopefully at that point that'll be enough. Beautiful. And, you know, winning an architecture award obviously after, you know, a long time just all of a sudden, you know, it was done and then ages later you were awarded this thing and I think that's when people started to understand what you had created and obviously as you say this legacy goes on I first knew that you were into food when at GPO we were talking about an event we might do for customers and you started to talk about a master stock and we got in the car later and I'm like Steph what's a master stock she's like okay we'll look that up now but your passion for food was obviously just a part of what you do as well. Talk to me about Ongarato. So, I mean, 30 years of an amazing design studio. I know we even had the discussion about what do Ongarato do and obviously the word branding came up. So I'd like you to talk about, you know, what Ongarato does. I'd love to hear, you know, where Ongarato came from and what it is today. And also within that, I'm sure we'll talk about, start to talk about creative process as well, which I think it'll be pretty rapt to hear from you. Well, I mean, I think the first assertion or point to make is that I'm very lucky that I found a, a partner in Fab that we just, well, I wouldn't say we always see eye to eye on things because often the resolution of a creative outcome is he says black and I say white. <laughs> <laughs> Joint, what is it? Coin toss. <laughs> well, it's not, it's just the, you know, part of, sorry, I'm jumping to creative process, but part, jump, jump. part of that creative tension is always being founded in the push and pull of ideas. And I think without, without, um, challenge and counterpoints, you don't have rigor. So one of the key tenets of our practice has always been rigor and that comes with that endless, you know, tireless kind of way in which you interrogate your work and then seek to perfect it That's and actually, question that's it. The se- you're the second person who said that in this series, Ingrid Rule from NGV said also it's that challenging and interrogation it eventually makes ideas better. Yeah. Without question. Um, adjunct to that, feel sort of one of the key tenets within the practice is a respect of others' opinions. Like, you know, we've always jokingly said and tested over time, you know, bookkeeper. <laughs> Yeah, and kind yeah, of yeah. using different perspectives because I think yeah. unless you kind of look at people's reaction to design, you really just can't quite gauge how it will likely be received. So from our perspective, you know, giving people a, a place and a recognition that everyone's opinion is kind of respected and that in our practice you're never too precious about trying to hold on to your idea. I mean, often a lot of our projects are meted forward with at least two designers kind of conceptualising the initial direction with the clients and then we mediate that. And I guess in some ways there always feels to be a winner or a loser, although we always feel that either way, as Fab always says, never present something that you're not willing for the client to take up. Um, Because they might pick it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, do we want to put that in? It's like, maybe not because they might choose it. That has happened. You learn quickly. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I guess in many respects, you know, there are many things that hit the cutting room floor over the years um, that you're sad to sort of see. But, you know, I mean, in every relationship we have in the conception of brands and the work that we do, um, an increasing recognition to kind of, uh, to borrow one of Fab's phrases, is that, you know, to kind of instill or realise an end result that the client may never have imagined before. So it's about taking their premise or at least their challenge or problem. Increasingly over the years, surprisingly over the years, I think we've become more interactive and transparent in the ideation process. When you say transparent, what do you mean? 
we kind of break down the inception of an idea a lot more to get early engagement with the client and involve them. Some that works. In others, you kind of clearly can see that there's such an inherent trust that they generally kind of seem to be really happy with everything every step along the way. So you make most of the active decisions. But a lot of our other clients, it's about kind of drawing out that aspiration and then how do we kind of take it to the next level. How did you and Fab meet? Good question. So I actually, I gave Fab his first, employed Fab on his first independent graphic design job. And um, I guess the conduit or the connective part of that relationship came, we both graduated and studied at RMIT. And um, my trajectory had gone from architecture to exhibition designer. So I was working at the powerhouse, which 25 years on, 30 years on. (laughs) I'm back working at. (laughs) Finish where you start. (laughs) And then migrated to the Jewish Museum and NGV to do an exhibition on um, migrant architects that had come from the Second World War and the influence they had on Australian modernism. And so I needed a graphic designer for the project and um, Patricia Piccinini's husband, Peter, had... Um, suggested that I should hook up with Fab. So that was our first job. And somehow I just became entrenched. We sort of, you know, again, post that, just jobs kept coming slowly, slowly. And again, that kind of philosophy of, you know, the biggest investment you can make is just making sure that you do your very best work in the last job. So one project at a time, I guess, we just continue to kind of evolve as a practice and still keep working today. That's incredible. Um, I think if there is respect in a studio, people are far more happy to float the ideas out there. And if they're happy and confident, if they get, you know, lead ballooned, it doesn't matter. You know, it's that confidence. So I guess where did your confidence come from? I think partly, so again, when I look at uh, how, and, you know, Fab and I like reflect upon it quite often, the makeup of our studio. So just to pedal back and give you a bit of context. So Fab studied art direction, which is the precursor to advertising at RMIT. I think back then it was called award school or, and so the foundation of our approach even before the notion of strategy and branding emerged, was using a lot of the um, planning of campaigns in advertising. So, you know, dissecting and understanding a target market, thinking about how one has conceptual clarity in their work, you know, really focusing on how you accentuate kind of USP or point of difference. Um, So there was kind of all the mechanisms and rigor in that, albeit that he was an exception to the rule. So, you know, the vast majority of his colleagues ended up at YNR, at Saatchi and Saatchi, and have all become kind of extraordinary creatives in their own field. And to his credit, you know, he was always kind of a bit left of centre, you know, loved underground music, really infatuated with art direction particularly in the fashion realm, and then very obsessed with the craft and the detail of graphic design. Um, So I think back then there wasn't really a a distinct discipline of graphic design. It was the art department's component of an advertising agency. Um, So that kind of probably is one key anchor and pillar in our kind of approach to things. And then coming from architectural, you know, the RMIT School of Architecture, um, it's kind of almost, you know, borrowing from the practice of the AA in London, you know, real rigour in, in design, a lot of accountability to be able to get up and really kind of not only pitch your work but to be able to kind of have the conviction and strengths of what you were, your ideation and and in a forum of pin-up with a whole lot of people standing in front of you. And, I mean, back then it maybe wasn't a healthy environment, but 
you really had to defend your work. They seemed to take it upon themselves to really <laughs> strip it back <laughs> <laughs> or you back. <laughs> I mean, surprisingly, in the realm of design and creativity, the notion of logic seems, what's the word, kind of counterintuitive or opposite to that notion of design and creativity. And I think there are many practices that are much more intuitive and in some respects, I guess, because in, in the realm of branding, you know, it's, it, it's our kind of task to understand what the right pitch is and also to have that intuitive cre- creativity to be able to instill and bring your creative influences into that. Um, but I think, I mean, as Studio Ongarado, that has given us incredible diversity, not only, you know, in skill set, so being able to, I think, we're very fortunate to have started with that combination of branding, advertising and architecture in our practice to be able to recognise that a brand is more than just the visual identity. These days it's about the culture, it's about the physical experience and thus, you know, being able to work with amazing people mm-hmm. such as yourself over the years to kind of realise that it's much more than just that. And you said to me, you know, it's it's not just branding really, it's experience, isn't it? Very much so. And I feel like um, I'd love for you to talk about um, some of the branding and this experience with some of the more recent projects that you've done as we talk. You know, obviously Jackalope springs to mind. Um, I'm sure everyone would love to hear about that as an example, maybe it's one of your favourite projects or you know, as a branding model. Tell us about that. Yeah, I I mean, Jackalope was probably, again, another milestone turning project in our practice. First off, amazing to have a client such as Lewis, hospitality family, trained filmmaker, passionate about art, daringly to take a winery and be the first one to kind of instill and infuse art into the experience. It's probably the very first what we would call kind of narrative. So we were blessed, again, being able to kind of be quite extraordinary and avert with that project. And so uh, the concept of alchemy in that work as a, is the word parable to the winemaking process so that viticulture is a transformative process of making grapes into wine. And so, again, all of the curated artworks and the thematics throughout the hotel are all exemplar of I think different seven of the different aspects of the winemaking process so there's concepts of distillation there's concepts of um I think conjugation is another word um yeah so Mm. I mean for us it was how do you again interestingly enough what evolved out of that in our practice is the notion of placemaking which is becoming a very much used word but how do you find something so distinctive about a locale, a community, the kind of people that visit it that is a distinct story that no one else can own? And I guess in branding, as much as placemaking, you strive to kind of instill the same thing. How do you find something so unique that all the ingredients that come together just make something magical and that stands out I, and in that way? clearly magical. Where did the word jackalope come from? Look, and the bunny. <laughs> and again, you know, that. Um, so that was Lewis's idea. Amazing. And again, it set the whole pretext encoded in, into the brand about the duality. So again, sometimes it's, it's, it appears to be one thing and then when you look a little longer, it's gone from cute bunny rabbit to kind of quite fierce and menacing, you know, with its antelope horns Mm. Um, and again continuing to kind of play on those tensions I think you may have asked me the question about what makes the brand what makes brands so interesting and and the creative approach that we take and that is kind of finding that juxtaposition of interesting tensions that propel the creativity into a realm where you get something really fresh and different Mm. And you can before. feel it. You can't necessarily put your finger on it, but it feels that. And I, I feel, you know, the reaction to Jackalope people have felt like there's that magic there, isn't there? 
And I guess, you know, I'm interested to know, like, what feels like reward for you, you know, in the sense for your studio, what drives you and what makes you feel super satisfied and rewarded? I mean, I guess there's two sides to that. You know, there's a recognition that, at least in our practice, that we are a, there's a commerce to our practice. And I say that only because I think there's many different constructs of practice. Some people do it. Well, you have to. For their own creative. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think some people do it for their own creative um, reward and, and development. And so their practice kind of evolves and clients manage to share in that. Um, I think clients come to us and I think we've always kind of thought that there is a necessity given their investment in our work and in what a branding process takes to have to give them some distinct commercial return. And it sounds a bit kind of commercial a bit. But I think over the years we've developed the confidence to know that it does like you know, many of our clients have reaped the reward of the investment that they've made. It's a bit um, daunting at times to think that you've kind of constantly got to innovate, perform, um, challenge. Uh, but I think personally and within the practice, the thing that continues to spur us along is we keep getting really exciting challenges that we've never kind of tackled before. So the notion of the design continues to move in many different kind of domains and fields. So designing food and beverage programs for the National Gallery in Canberra, uh, reconceiving the membership strategy, um, working with the powerhouse on kind of their philosophical framework around the positioning of the powerhouse. Of course, we're doing the identity component, but so... Your work seems to go so far beyond you know, the the word branding. I, can, I, I mean, I know I've had conversations with you when I'll ring you at like six o'clock at night when you're at the desk and I'm on the, in the car and I'll go, okay, so what are you working on now? And you go, oh, I'm just calculating out, you know, how much we need to, you know, something for the real estate for something and it's like nothing to do with branding <laughs> because you truly are entrepreneurial and um, I feel like there's this all-encompassing whatever research needs to be made to make this work and for it to be a successful commercial enterprise that you're fully all in with your clients on that and you actually help them through those processes. Uh, It appears from the outside you have such a unique way of working with your clients and your collaborators. I'm interested to hear how you work with clients and collaborators and makers as well over those years. Working with clients over the years, the you know, I think where we sit today, 25 to 30 years, there's increasingly a confidence. I try and avoid a kind of grumpiness, <laughs> grumpiness which has potential to creep in. Well, I think obviously, you know, one of the key things that people have said to me is that I really like working with nice people and I think you know as you go on with your works you you find your tribe and you've always kind of and that's been something for me listening to you has always been resonant and reflected in your practice um, as a designer and I've much admired that I think I mean today I talk about frankness so almost up front you know, recognising it's like a relationship, you know, a good relationship means you can have a, a, a good old Barney and a fight and still sit down to a meal afterwards in, in, the, in the family background that I was Definitely. brought up. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're working towards a common interest or a goal, working closely with a client, I mean, these days I'm really like, you know, there'll be times I turn around and say, I think we're going to make you uncomfortable, not or I can sense already we're going to push them outside their comfort zone and I'm very open about that. And sometimes I'm more comfortable these days in saying things I know that's just a bit blunt. And you know what, it's it's that thing of teach, oh, not teaching, it's like 
getting your client to understand the way the process goes, I think is so important. If you have those conversations early about this is the moment when it's going to come off the page and you're going to feel like this and there'll be a moment there where it all unravels and you think it's not going to come back together but it will because that's the moment and then we're going to push it back together and it's all going to be amazing at the end and we're going to be sitting around having a glass of champagne going, wow, that was great. (laughs) Um, But I feel like, yeah, transparency, I feel saying what you have to say in a way can take away a whole lot of angst. You know, my thing is if you can learn to say what you need to say nicely, then you'll avoid a lot of conflict and a lot of potential, you know, I talk about this all the time, differing of expectations. So much that goes into the design process is kind of no time for dancing around everything else and kind of having to just posture or, or negotiate. Well, not so much negotiate, but to kind of just waste time on getting from A to B um, rather than actually concentrating the energy where it's necessary. That said, working a lot in other design realms like America and particularly in China, our candour as Australians to just kind of roll up the sleeves and, you know, have the conversations and then work out the path to continue to move forward. So the notion of having frank conversation and negotiation moving forward on an issue is not always as well received elsewhere in the world. You have Mm. to kind of work through the different cultural approach to things. But I think in many respects as, as an Australian designer reflecting on what has made Australian designers so Um, recognised and well-respected anywhere they go in the world is, I think, um, hard-working ethic, ability to roll up the sleeves and and effectively get things done. And as Chris Contos says, also like fun. Yeah. You know, I think that it it does, Australians working internationally is definitely a thing. And I'm interested to know why did you start doing work overseas? Did it sort of come to you? Um, is that a part of Ongarato now and is it something you, you keep fostering or is it, you know, just when people come to you, to you, they have, you know, you're global citizens, I guess, yeah. I guess within the practice it's never been a stri- our strategic intent to kind of to look at number of geographic locations or scale um, for those of you that don't know, I mean, the studio sits at about 24 people still today. It's a comfort zone. I think <clears throat> one of the things in looking back through our career, there are certain milestones or age and the acceleration to kind of grow a practice's needed maturity and experience to be able to do that. We're fortunate to sort of always have amazing tenure. Most of our designers are sort of, you know, come and and work as part of our team and learn over a five-year period. Some continue to stay, others, you know, take um, that um, skill that they've developed over that time and manage to go to amazing places in such as London and New York and get fantastic jobs. Fab and I have always had the kind of belief that we, you know, we shouldn't be confined by our kind of geographic location and that what we look for is just the next amazing challenge that we can apply our skill to do amazing work and clients that have the appetite for that. So it's never been a concerted strategy to go, okay, we're now going to, it's not the sort of empirical view of conquering continents. It's it's the global view of... (laughs) domination. Great clients can be here in Australia or they can be anywhere. Of course, and I, I concur. I think what one of the things that we look for is where the core of the creative decisions are made and increasingly we find that is often in Australian companies. Often in our area of work, you know, you might get to work with a major global brand but you're working a long way from the creative source in Switzerland or in France, usually maybe through um, Dubai or Hong Kong or China and then, you know, you're a sort of a fourth party, you know, and that's 
sometimes not a great way to work. You have very little influence, you know, so I feel like you're right, finding um, where you can be at the centre of the creative hub is where you can use your superpowers and affect the most change or the most influence and magic, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, and work through a project with no kind of resistance or impediment. I mean, a lot of the bigger global brands in their spheres obviously, you know, want some homogeneity on a global scale and so depending on how tight they are, it can be difficult. I've found over the years being in Australia, we can get away with a lot Um, only because sometimes the scale of markets to them at a global level so inconsequential or we're the antipodes so we're so far away. (laughs) What they don't see, what they don't know. I think of our work with Herman Miller when we did then times 10. That was beautiful. You know, and, and now, you know, in, is it Pennsylvania or in the States, head office have claimed that as their idea, you know, to perpetuate the brand's relationship with graphic design and amazing designers such as Steve Frickham and we opened that up to amazing illustrators globally to kind of talk about iconic pieces of furniture. Back then also the challenge... very ahead of its time. Anyway, go on. ...was to, to kind of parry all of the replica furniture coming out of China and to talk about the authenticity and the provenance of actually owning an original piece of furniture. Talking about makers, you've worked, I mean, you've just mentioned, you know, furniture makers. Over the decades, you've worked with some incredible creatives. Tell me about the joy of that. Well, I think one of the things, um, again, you know, in our practice, so that I think has held us in good stead and and plays to the notion of staying young and being vital. And, I, you know, we continue to keep ourselves in check. So part of that is also the, you know, the designers are very much part of that collaborative sphere of people working with us and keeping that fresh. Um, I think it's allowed us to be very diverse and never kind of single-minded in the way we approach our work. And it's that you know, collaboration and the co-creation that has kind of just kept our practice fresh and I think our ability to hopefully in, you know, for the next generation potentially taking over the studio practice will allow them to kind of continue to kind of um, set the pace and still remain relevant. And I think that renewal is a word I often use is the key to creative longevity. And so I think, again, my observation, you know, in our, you know, working together, that creative cohort, the sphere that you create around your practice is really paramount. So, you know, keeping an eye constantly over just, and, you know, increasingly within the studios, we, we do, we have a kind of our own internal mechanism with, you know, a couple of people being in other offices and also through COVID not having transparency. One of the big things is that generosity of sharing. So pinning up work in the studio, being able to see what other people are doing. The computer all too quickly kind of put designers in a little bit of a silo and so being able to encourage that. And then we've kind of just moved also into um, a parallel to that creative sharing. So what work are you working on? Um, a project that you kind of in the last three months that you're loving that is also bringing those influences in. So I think fundamental to a really um, vibrant, active, creative practice is the, uh, the cultural capital that you have. The most telling question in an interview when we're looking you know, I need to take you, note, people. <laughs> candidates, is their interest? So, you know, are they big book collectors? What kind of books do they collect? Are they interested in mu- music? Has it been the influence of mu- music record covers that have been influential in their sphere? Are they interested in motion graphics? So, frame of reference, and so it 
I don't we don't consciously measure it, but also being to know able to know that we have people with lots of cultural diversity and interest, and it can be food, it can be architecture, <laughs> it can be sculpture, a particular type of art or photography, and that's really important um, that we keep, you know, we keep account of that and that um, we share that within our practice. Mm. I notice when new designers come in, they're always interested in looking at other people not for their work but where they look for their cultural influence and the cultural capital that they bank I love that I love that and I love you know when you said oh we don't really measure it I think it's right that you look for that because it's so important to for you to understand who that person is and often it's all those the intangibles about people that are the thing that make their work magic. You know, they have their expression, whether it's drawing, painting or whatever, but it's something that's, that they love, you know, within the cultural or art world. That is their definable difference and, and they bring it. And that's so exciting when people just bring it to you. And as you know, as a designer, it's, there's always a trigger you know, it could be a, <laughs> Good or bad. a piece of post, poster art or I'm looking at the amazing floral arrangement behind you and it can be the depth of colour or the fact that it's variegated, something that triggers. And so it's really important that you continue to kind of feed that in your practice. One thing we always talk about in our studio is making sure that we are creating original works. Often when we see things, we see something that takes our eye and it's charming or powerful and you, you sort of can't get that idea out of your head and then when you go to design, that idea is there. And one of the things we talk about is how to be inspired by things but create your own original works. What's your process? So I think, I mean, there are a number of factors that kind of bring you to the kind of response so for us also the originality comes from the kind of inputs you know being able to um, understand the kind of nature of the entity that we're working with whether it's a hotel a retail brand a fashion brand part of it is kind of understanding context so we spend some time you know and really becoming immersed to understand how where and where the kind of benchmark the bar is and what defines a kind of sphere where there's potential for originality and then obviously you know being accountable in terms of our influences is that we often not very focused on graphic design so a lot of the influences come from other realms. I love that when it's from somewhere other than you sit because often it's, it is in a different realm, but you can somehow apply it to what you're doing. And then the synthesis of it. So I think importantly, <clears throat> invariably some of the kind of as you feel your way through a design exercise, the immediate response is something that is often at first the most obvious. So what we tend, the tactic tends to be let that play out and then how do we move beyond yeah. yeah left or right so zag where you would naturally land that's interesting because you know we've got a saying that is sometimes it's good to state the obvious I suppose that kind of works in reverse because we're always looking for the different thing and sometimes we overlook some things that are good and true and don't need to be really? improved yep. so we kind of have that opposite saying but I'm understanding what you're saying about just take it a little bit further and you never know what will come out. Well, and then we often kind of define that tension or what makes our work, parts of our work interesting is the combination of seemingly kind of odd things. I'm not sure if that's the right expression, but, <clears throat> yeah, it's the combination of interesting layers and tensions in the work. Um, that the combination drives that form of form of originality. And interestingly, over time, I guess that the original works, the body of the work that you create, somehow has 
and Ongarato handwriting to it. Isn't it strange how that slowly builds over time? And it's, you know, it's one project at a time. And yet it, when you look at a 30-year body of work, there's a signature of work there. And, I, you know, for me, that's what's rewarding. You didn't, you didn't set out to make that happen. It just happened along the way. I think in the early days it was very hard to kind of spot. And then I think those that have kind of either worked with us over the years or watched our practice probably can easily spot something that we've applied our hand to. There's probably some key things I think that bring, even though every project is really so different, we start on the premise that we don't rehash, reinvent work. We start from a completely blank canvas and bring no preconception of an idea. I think some, like when I look at architects, um, not to suggest that they rehash their work, but they continue to refine their architectural vocabulary over a significant number of decades. <clears throat> and so they'll have the look for projects to continue to test the same and refine the same idea over and over again. And so we don't um, bring that. But I think undercurrent would be Fab and I have never really been one for gimmicks. They're kind of always up front, the test uh, un- kind of unspoken in our work is that notion of longevity. If I think about, you know, the number of years that the current country ro- lo- road logo has endured, albeit that I'm noticing that younger generation have dragged back the 80s Steve Bennett logo with a passion. It's going absolute gangbusters. You know, Calibre, Scanlon Theodore. So I, I don't know. We've always had the idea that, you know, it's important that what we do, that the periphery of, of aspects of, of, of an identity or a work can change, that it should have enough flexibility and not preciousness to reinvent itself. But I think its core and some of the other principles kind of still maintain, dare I say, like I wouldn't think of our work as being classical, but that notion of kind of withstanding the test of time. So it's always a balance. And I think we do, we construct some responses with an idea that there are very deliberate parts that are temporal or open for other collaborators to come in and, you know, add to it. Yeah, and instill another slant on creativity into it. And I think for our clients that strategy is making sure that they are fresh and continuing to be dynamic and exciting and relevant. Fantastic. I've got some um, quick questions for you. So you don't know what they are, (laughs) but, yeah, let's go with them. All right. What's your best piece of advice for newer designers? Are we talking graduates or just? Anyone, yeah. Yeah, graduates. Look, I mean. Let them drink from the fountain of wisdom. You're asking someone. (laughs) I mean, the other thing about our you know, Studio Wangarato and Fab and my career in parallel is we'd never worked for anyone else, which is so perhaps one word of advice is don't pursue that path. <laughs> if I Do look, your own thing. Well, the smart, it's taken us a number of years. It, there are two sides like to that. years. <laughs> to build our IP and a lot of that has been meted by us having to work it out. There is distinct advantage, I think, of spending some time very carefully chosen about practices that you're going to learn, you know, good design practice, good business acumen, systems and structure. We've had to invent it all every step along the way. We're fortunate that we've had great employees that have kind of brought their learnings into our practice and allowed things to evolve. It's probably also been advantageous because we've been able to write our own rules and not kind of um, made a pastiche of, of kind of what we've um, learned and kind of gathered along the way. But I think it's really important in your career path to kind of understand what that growth capacity in every situation is. And even as a pra- practitioner, the kind of things that you take on that will challenge and kind of grow, grow you. So I think, you know, where you can be ambitious, 
I think I always talk about the kind of career ladder. You know, if you pitch too low, it takes an enormous effort to kind of move up. So never strive. You may not quite, you know, you may kind of keep grasping and you kind of have to settle for a rung sort of slightly below, but you should always kind of aim to be ambitious. One thing you said to me when we were working one day or talking was you kind of finish where you start. And that is so true. And I think to, you know, try and go where you really want to go in the first instance, um, you know, is the way to go. And, you know, when I think of our relationship with Sports Girl, uh, that was one of the very first jobs I had almost as a teenager. I've had a 40-year relationship <laughs> with that company, you know, and we still do stuff with companies like that, you know. So it's very interesting. I think, I think it's amazing really, pretty incredible. Well, and that also kind of stands testament of dedication and kind of commitment um, and running your own path, I think. The, you know, it's even throughout our career, the kind of you see the market shift and change and you you always wonder whether you should kind of um, zag or you kind of, you know, change your course. But I think ultimately... Like COVID, like how has your business changed through COVID? Probably the company culture more than anything else. Look, without question, we're still a very um, in-person, face-to-face creative collaborative studio it's you know pin up all of those things we spoke about rigor and critical review conversation very much as part of creativity still really important I think people tired of being of doing that in zoom because all you seemed to do was spend time in zoom that said the pure creative part of the practice pro- loved also the fact that you could turn off zoom and just get your head into the work that you needed to do mm. so um but i think more so the kind of culture within the business we've become a lot more i guess progressive in a way around recognizing that you know people can work anywhere anytime a little bit and that people are more flexible so a very conventional nine to five practice Mm, not not so much. the MO anymore. Yeah, I feel that. And that's the silver lining, isn't it? And recognising that people like a sense of trust and people have, you know, I, I believe or certainly in our sphere take their responsibility of, you know, what they're being charged to do and and just let them do what they it, do. Do the work. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. All right, really basic questions. What's your favourite colour? No, I kind of. In terms of favourite colours, it's more environmental than anything else. I mean, the longhouse, we, we've kind of straddled the gamut because we live in a grey environment colour. The recognition that the value of colour, so one entire component of the house is painted wedgewood blue. Beautiful. Another component is what I call a Barbarella. It's rose gold and musk pink. Beautiful. <laughs> Getting better all the time. (laughs) I do love my SA wood burning stove, which is in a kind of terracotta or brick, what I call brick, colour, earthen colour. So that's probably where I'm at. So you kind of are into colour. I love that. Probably not so much in terms of attire and clothing as much as, like I said, I think the more consequential effect is being in an environment where space and colour and I do feel a lot of designers, because they work in colour and do things, then they dress quite um, in a more of a design way just because their lives are so colourful, like you just need a uniform to work with, which you, is sort of the way I go about it. I love the concept of uniform. <laughs> yes, yeah, so do I. As far as a daily kind of, I very rarely do, but the shoes kind of make, make an accent at, part, at times, the kind of jacket. Yeah. I love jackets. It's, it's kind of freedom if you can get a wardrobe that you're happy with that has the elements of ease and the occasional wow factor. That's freedom. You can get up every morning and just work it, I feel, if you put that little bit of effort into it as well. A lot of the time also you, can't, you develop a confidence that just means you can kind of, like a lot of the time I feel I can go from a formal occasion or just rock up to work and being able to kind of just not have to think. I mean, it's still great to get dressed up. Of course. (laughs) 
What's your favourite font? Probably Universe. Okay. What do you, what's good about Universe? Uh, kind of modern typeface, I think, that's, again, a bit like uniform, quite versatile in any situation. Looks good. Stands up to time. Fantastic. What are your favourite cities to travel to? I have to say I'm not a big city person. Maybe partly growing up, we were never a, let's sort of summer holiday, winter holiday up at the Gold Coast or Queensland. My mum always dragged us off to Thailand and Vietnam and interesting places. Great. I don't know, the authenticity of place and the experiences. I mean, increasingly in our hotel work, you know, curated travel, we're less preoccupied with the design and the look of hotel, of course, you know, what if my partner constantly looks at me and, and questions the interrogation over like the um, chattels inside an Airbnb or a hotel. He goes, you kind of look at the strangest things and scrutinise the smallest detail. But Can't help I, yourself. I think... Um, what was it, prior in New York, an Aussie guy that started this amazing curated travel business. We kind of, I look for the adjunct of the experiences that you can build around destination. I do remind myself we have to have every second, so I have kind of a programmatic approach to how one plans holidays. We love a program, <laughs> tell all. One holiday has to be adventure. In other words, planned experiences on the move. Every second holiday has to be a flop and drop without question. Never heard of called so, that before, but that is great. Stack of books, nothing to do. Good weather. Decompression, exactly. Beautiful. Well, I mean, it could be in cold as well. I mean, that. I mean, we could talk about what travel does for creativity. It's absolutely mind-opening and it just it, it's the gateway to new thinking and considering new things and looking at things in a different way, therefore growth. Love it, don't we? Every every creative person I know loves travel. Um, Everyone. Yeah, the Jeffrey, the probably the most amazing last trip was the trip to Sri Lanka and actually doing the full tour of all of the Jeffrey Bawa, who is really the precursor to um, tropical kind of Southeast Asia resort architecture. But here's the tip. You can write to the foundation and stay in his house in Colombo. And it was like stepping into Charles and Ray Eames's life. He had the most amazing collection of objects, all of which are still perfectly preserved, to textiles, to everywhere you looked. It was, um, and not objects in the antiquities, it was just this incredible, like, wooden toys or beautiful bowls, the marquette of this amazing copper sculpture that he had commissioned for the 1960 World Expo Sri Lankan pavilion. Like That sounds... Run, don't walk. Yeah. <laughs> you have to put those details and, in your Instagram. Oh, here's one for your husband. Yes, please. Yes, please. The silver shadow Rolls Royce that still sits polished. I don't think it's been driven in the front garage what when you colour? go and stay. It's um, a dark metallic silver. Happy days. I love that. Who's your favourite Australian photographer? I guess looking at new generation, there's a, an, a young Australian guy, Philip Hyun. He's about to publish a book, I think, with Tarshan. Uh, or is it um, Steidl? But his thing is photographing garden, so it's not, you know, non-human. And he gets flown around the world to photograph gardens. He's he's obsessed. In fact, I met because he was obsessed with the longhouse, and he's probably been up and stayed with us maybe about a dozen or more times. And he really gets into a subject about just the fact that he's into photographing gardens, which I love, and he's got an amazing way of doing it. Are you a back of house or a front of house person? Most people say that I'm front of house only because in our practice I'm at times the loudest voice and have been mouthpiece, maybe because it feels awkward to say, but maybe because I'm blessed with a, an ability to be 
articulate, but I'm actually, if I, I've, from my own perspective, I see myself as a, the back of house person, often focused on how do you keep the mechanics of things and just kind of being a support mechanism. And that in part has been part of the beauty of our relationship and working with someone so creatively brilliant such as Fab is to play a kind of adjunct role, but probably a bit like some duo design practices, the, you know, where we get to is, is as I've perhaps touched on in this conversation, you know, the interrogation, the rigour is not necessarily a hat, the, um, is not necessarily the authorship on the work, but how you get to an amazing design result. So I think um, I would say I'm the backseat participant. Luce and Jahan and I have been talking about this and there's like a sociable introvert is what I think a lot of people are. Like we're happy to present, we're happy to talk about our ideas, but, you know, like Jahan, at the end of the day, maybe we'd like to stay home and put Netflix on rather than go to the actual event. We're happy to make it, but then step away. So we've sort of started to talk about the uh, sociable introvert, yeah. <laughs> which we love. And finally, what's your favourite design quote or quote of anything? If I was to state one, it would be the, f- the value that design can bring to the extra- of the extraordinary to the everyday so I think in many respects, you know, being a designer, I don't know how you feel about it, but, mm. you know, we've seen design as a discipline. We've been kind of categorised as a kind of, you know, oh, that's designer or that's design. But I think design is permeating, you know, so many different facets of and aspects of everything that we touch in our lives and, you know, from products to very collectible and covetable pieces of furniture, but I think it's when you can create something that just brings serendipity and delight that um, transform people's view of things that that's the real value of design. I love it. Thank you so much for coming here today. It's just been so, so great to have you around the kitchen table. Um, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, anytime.